river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through. Hey, Paul. How you doing, buddy? Hey, good. How are you? Good, man. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks. I was uh, just about to text you. Yeah, we're a minute early, James. We're a minute early this time. That's good. Wow, yeah. you guys are. This is professional. It's truly a professional <laughs> operation. That's that's yeah, exactly cause... what we strive for every time. Professional. <laughs> because we know <laughs> what we're doing, man. How's the kid, Ren? How's little Ren doing? Oh man, so good, so good. Yeah, he's been. Uh, he's a little monster. Well, you guys, you guys know what they're like. It too. It's like it's hard to keep up. You got them out uh, jet skiing and stuff, looking for some blacktails. <laughs> I got over the the jet skis long gone, but um, we did do a we did a um, we did an eight day um, wilderness river trip a few weeks ago up in the Arctic with uh, him and my wife and I and another friend and their little toddler. So that was a, that was a pretty pretty exciting adventure. That we had a few moments we were like, are we being stupid here? But it worked out. <laughs> I, you know, like last year was my first trip to Alaska and I have those, I have those times, like you're saying, where I'll be like in the middle of nowhere in the desert, but I'm like in my truck and I'm like, well, if we break down here, I haven't seen it. Like I can't walk out with her. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, those are legit fears to me. Like I can't even imagine <laughs> the stuff you guys do. It's, it's incredible. No. Well, like, it's uh, either that or irresponsible. Like yeah, we were yeah, that might be. Uh, on our like fourth day, we uh, we were camped on this, in a spot, and we knew that we knew some weather was coming, so we, some rain was coming. So we decided to uh, just kind of hunker down for the day. And that night, it rained like uh, probably, I bet it rained an inch to two inches of water that night. And um, we'd gone to bed early. I woke up in the middle of the night because I got a little just. I've done so many river trips. I was like, oh, man, I think the river's going to come up. And I went and I pulled the raft way up and retied it. We would have lost the raft if I hadn't done that, which was scary in itself, um, especially because I hadn't thought to do it before we went to bed. <laughs> but uh, we woke up and, like, this beautiful, clear little, like, low-volume creek was like this big brown monster. And uh, we texted the pilot who was supposed to pick us up and, he was like, well, you ought to stay put because all the landing strips are totally underwater right now. He's like, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and we have two toddlers. And, I mean, we, the, we saw a break in the forecast, so we figured it was going to come down. But we were, we definitely were like second guessing our decision to be out there with kids at that point. I, uh, I showed my wife some pictures of some of your adventures on Kodiak from Instagram. And she was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, he's got his baby out there. And I was like, yeah. She's like, oh my goodness, and I was like, but he's a doctor, and she's like, oh, well, that should be all right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's. Cool. <laughs> I, get, I, I think you're giving me too much credit. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure that makes that much difference. My, my favorite, my favorite kinda... pictures are the ones of him skiing down the mountain with the kid in the the, the pack. <laughs> oh man, I've I've had I got like just surprisingly just one like kind of email. I don't do much social media, and so like. I, I never really get any like, you know, comments, but it was like, a, of all things, it was like an ex-girlfriend from like many years ago 
who's a doctor now too. And she was just like, basically she was like, I can't believe you're doing that with your kid. That is so irresponsible. (laughs) (laughs) But think how awesome it's going to be later in life when he sees all those pictures and he's going to be like, yes, my dad raised me right. Either that or he'll he'll be like, you are an idiot, dad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. So yeah, you guys, uh, our listeners that, don't know who we're talking to here. We got Paul Forward back on. We had we had you on what a year and a half ago or so, Paul. Yeah, could be. Yeah, something like yeah, that. So if you guys haven't listened to that episode, you need to go back and listen. Uh, Paul is just a bow hunting fool, born and raised in Alaska. And if you can't tell from the story so far, he pretty much <laughs> does everything. And. Um, when I first heard about you, I was looking you up online and I was trying to find you, but all I found was all these, these ski blister skiing and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, is this the guy? <laughs> and what a lot of people, you know, our audience doesn't know is not only are you risking your life out there with your two year old in the summer and the winter, you're just on all these helicopter, uh, crazy ski trips. Have you always done that? Oh, I, I mean, I've always really liked being in the mountains, and uh, skiing is just an awesome way to get around, and then it turned into, like, kind of skiing for the sake of skiing, you know, for, like, the, you know, kind of the athletic pursuit of it, and the, just the enjoyment of skiing, and so, um, yeah, I've been, I've had skis on my feet since I was pretty, uh, for, like, pretty little kid, um, yeah, like, elementary school or younger, but not a, not a ton of, like, alpine skiing. My parents didn't really have money for that, so we did a lot of backcountry skiing and then in my early teens i got my first kind of backcountry set up and that, that's a whole other story of like just not having any idea what i was doing and just i look back at it now and i just can't believe we didn't get ourselves hurt because we had no clue what we were doing with kids but uh but yeah that's been a part of my life for a long time ski in the winter whitewater kayak in the summer and, and then hunt all fall and that's that's always been the goal <laughs> work keeps getting in the way but <laughs> Which what you need to do. to do in the long winters up there anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. It's an awesome way to see the country. I mean, I get, I've gotten to see so much of like, almost every mountain range in Alaska, including out in the Aleutian chain, you know, via one way or another, hunting or skiing, or and sometimes via rivers, via whitewater. It's a great, great excuse to go lots of wild places. Man, imagine if you could go and knock down a doll sheep and then ski them out. Oh man, I have given this so much thought. <laughs> I bet you have. I don't want to get into it on the podcast necessarily, but there's a way that I have thought about that it's like it's feasible. I've actually spent quite a bit of time thinking about it and trying to figure out a way to do it. But it's you know the tra- the time of year you can travel effectively in the mountains on skis obviously doesn't coincide with hunting season in very many places, but. I, th- I think there's a way it could be done, or especially goat hunting. I think goat hunting is is, is within grasp also. Well, we'll cover that on the next podcast after your winter trip. <laughs> I think I need to, like, look after the kids in school. I don't know. <laughs> Donnie Vincent, watch out. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, right. No way. I, I'm, I'm like an amateur of amateurs. Like, I am. <laughs> no, no. Oh, right. How have you guys been? Uh, good, man. Good. We've been busy. Kind of slacked on the podcast for a while there, which was nice to have a little break. But, yeah, we're getting back into it. I'm taking off to go hunting here 
kind of like you this this well i guess probably gonna take off sunday so i'll be gone for oh awesome a long time so where you headed uh i am going i got a couple deer tags and three elk tags so i'm going to three different states for seven weeks oh man that is awesome yeah it's gonna be good like a dream. my daughter for the first month so um yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna be hunting, but I will have my daughter with me. So <laughs> wow, gonna, that sounds not perfect. Be real hardcore, you know. Oh uh, no, it sounds great. Hey. We've been yeah, that sounds great. She's quite the little elk caller, so I think you're gonna be in good hands, Bob. <laughs> well, she's gonna have to go back to school. With the elk hunting gets pretty serious, so that should work out good. I'll be mule deer hunting for a few weeks and. That's just a lot of spotting and stock, and she's pretty sneaky, and yeah, it's going to be a blast, man. I just, my goal is to uh, get her out there, track one, and she's been with me on a lot of hunts, but she always has to leave right before I get one, you know, so <laughs> I'm hoping I can pull it off while she's there. It'd be sweet. Oh, that'd be so special. I mean, just being able to do that with your kids sounds so cool. I, I can't wait to, like... You know, right now we just drag him along on stuff and he doesn't know what's happening. But when he's old enough to, like, understand what's going on, I think that's going to be just incredible. But what you're doing sounds so cool. Yeah, yeah, should be good. So you're uh, packing up to go where where you start? Uh, I'm going to go sheep hunting. So I've got pretty much uh, August schedule cleared off just to try to to go on some, uh, some mountain adventures. So priority is to try to find sheep for my wife and uh despite all my efforts she um has resisted being a bow hunter so <laughs> she'll be taking a rifle and uh, the only although to be fair the only sheep um she's ever killed was with me and we killed it at like under 30 yards so we'll try to get close but um and so and she's she's got a pretty small window um and the goal is for her to um after about seven or eight days or so in the field, um, she's going to get a get a bump out and then fly all the way fly home. And then I'll uh, I'll probably stay on for another however long I can at least at least seven to ten days. Hopefully I'll have I'm going to have twenty days of food with me, so hopefully I'll be able to push on and have a good adventure. See what the weather does. Yeah, oh that sounds epic. You lucky Alaskans get to go do that every year. Uh, pretty lucky, yeah. You, uh, you had some luck last year, didn't you, on the sheep? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I had some luck for sure. I, uh, stumbled into a, an awesome old ram on like the third or fourth day and then spent three days trying to get them. And, um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Definitely, whoa, definitely whoa, some whoa, stuff whoa. worked out back, in my favor. Back up, Paul. Back up, Paul. Let's, <laughs> I gotta hear this story. Can you just tell us the story? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, um, I went to an area I'd never been before and, um, I should, I should preface like one of my things about sheep hunting that I feel kind of strongly about is that there's a big difference between sheep hunting when you, when you or someone else has like spotted the sheep from the air ahead of time versus when you just get your feet on the ground, whether you drive there or hike there or boat there and start walking. And, um, I've never done the like aerial spotting thing or, and, um, and so I just went to a, to a spot I'd never been before. I, I was, uh, uh, just started before walking. You, 
before you get started on that, Paul, do, do a lot of the guides and outfitters up there do that? Because I heard I've heard Dick and Yote talk about that too about the guys flying and um, is that common up there for guys to spot them from there and then drop in and hunt? You what's yeah. the rule a day later you it's, can hunt them? It's, so the um, so in. I want to say it was in, uh, it wasn't that long ago. It was within the last 10 or 15 years that they changed the rule so that you could only spot sheep legally up through August 9th when the sheep season starts August 10th. But as you can imagine, I mean, you guys have been to Alaska. It's like, it's vast, right? And nobody's, you know, I'm sure some people get in trouble occasionally for spotting sheep during the season. But um, my, my impression and my just, personal anecdotal experiences that um, a lot of the sheep that get killed, I would hazard to even say the majority of sheep, the vast majority of sheep that are killed, that are done by airplane access, somebody's probably spotted those sheep from the airplane. Uh, that's, but that's my impression. And I can tell you when I'm, when I'm hunting in um, pretty much any of the mountain ranges that I've hunted in the state, uh, I've seen just, you know, there are a lot of airplanes flying around. Yeah, and you know, in the airplanes uh, up here, that there's there's these planes. You guys have probably been been in or seen Super Cubs, which are these really small, kind of one or two seater airplanes. That um, the, the thing about them that's really cool is that they can fly really slow, and they're really yeah. they're fairly powerful relative to their weight. So they can take off and land on really short strips, or and then they they run these like big, you know, 30, 35 inch bush wheels that can land on really rough surfaces. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of guys out there, both outfitters and then private pilots that have access to these planes. And, uh, they're, they're getting to places with the airplanes that, you know, traditionally you would think of as like helicopter landings almost. I mean, not, not quite that extreme, but, uh, and, I have seen some of the outfitters just, I mean, just hammering. And I, I've talked to I've talked to Don Thomas about their experience up in the Brooks Range, and I've had similar experiences where people are just constantly buzzing the valley well after August 10th. Yeah. And my impression is, is a lot of the sheep that get killed get killed um, by aerial spotting one way or another. I mean, I've, I've heard I've heard outfitters say, like, you know, when they have their season booked, they kind of know in advance. Uh, and this may be hyperbole, but they know in advance like which hunter is going to kill which ram, kind of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which to me is like kind of the antithesis of like fair chase to some degree, you know. It's like, yeah. But that's just my opinion. Yeah. All right. Sorry to interrupt your story. I wanted to clarify that. Oh, that's okay. Well, was, yeah, yeah. No, it's worth, it's a worthwhile point. I think it's a, I think it's a big deal. I think it's actually yeah. an, an important issue that we're worth talking about up here. Um, but. Um, Anyway, um, so I started walking the last three or four days. Um, didn't uh, didn't really see any rams at all. Saw one sublegal ram on the second day, and uh, saw some some nursery herd using lambs around. And I think it was right before I went to bed on the fourth or fifth night. I spotted some sheep coming through a really steep cliffy area a mile or two away and uh they just seemed they you, you, they just seemed like they had to be rams the way they were behaving and I was able to get the spine scope on them and saw one that was 
clearly a big old ram and I uh, got really excited. And uh, so I, yeah, I, I do all my hunting in the mountains pretty much with, you know, I basically break camp every morning, shove everything in my backpack and then take, you know, wherever I end up, I end up. So I just um, changed direction and went down and they bedded down in a place that especially at that time of night, it was like just about dark was um, unapproachable. Even if I'd had good light, they were just in this like really open, very, very steep kind of rock face. And, uh, and so I kind of make, kind of made note of where they were. And I woke up, set my little watch to wake my, wake me up every couple hours. So I'd pop my head out and walk over my spotting scope and make sure they were still there all night. And I woke up when I had enough light a few hours later that I knew that I was going to have enough light to move. And ah, sure enough, um, I like went out, spotted them, went back to my tent to get my boots on, went back out to my scope to look up and they were gone. <laughs> and, uh, so, God, oh man, but I kind of had a sense, you know, I kind of figured, in my experience, it seems like a lot of sheep uh, that I've hunted anyway, in places I've hunted, will kind of do a morning feeding kind of pretty early in the morning. They'll bed down, and then when it starts to get first light, they'll drop pretty low and feed. And so I kind of just worked that hunch. I climbed up to where they had been and uh, and then tried to just move to where I thought they might be, and um, sure enough spotted them below me and just kind of, I just, you know, played the game of trying to anticipate where they were going to ascend because they weren't in a place I could, they were in kind of some open area, got about a hundred yards away. And, um, and then I was able to get about 60 yards away from them feeding, but, um, couldn't quite figure out what direction they were going to go. And, uh, they, they passed me at 40 yards and, uh, I, I really had no recourse. I had no, nothing to do. Um, and I, the last one kind of saw me move as I was trying to make a little, trying to do a little last sneak. So I kind of bumped them there, which really bummed me out. I thought maybe I'd never see them again. Um, so I retreated down to the valley floor and across the other side so I could kind of look back across and see maybe where they ended up. Found them, and they had split off into two groups of two. There was a, there was a group of four rams initially, and, um, and I camped as close as I dared. And, uh, let's see. Yeah. So the first night and the next day, uh, the next day I watched, kind of just watched them all day and kind of just followed them around trying to see where they'd end up. And then, um, that night they kind of disappeared up over this, like kind of glaciated snow field that I couldn't travel up real steep cliffy area. And so I camped pulled down below, hoping I'd see, be able to see them somewhere in the morning with the plan to climb up the opposite side of the valley. And, again, to see this bottom. And, uh, as I was doing that the next morning, I got to this little Creek that I had to cross. And, uh, as I kind of stomped across the Creek, I looked back up and I saw two sheep coming down into the green, into the grass, like in the Valley kind of toward me, but you know, half a mile up Valley. And, uh, it was the two, the two biggest Rams, including the one that the one really, really big one that I wanted. And, uh, the second one, kind of just lagged behind and started feeding and the bigger one just kind of beelined it across the valley, across the creek about a half mile upstream from me and just carried on to kind of where I was headed anyway. And, uh, you guys know, it's always way easier to get an animal when it's by itself than when it's with other animals. And, uh, Oh, at this point I'd seen the other two, they were kind of lingering behind, kind of making their way behind the, the, the first two. And so like, this was kind of like, 
bit risky, but the other one was around the corner. The big one was around the corner at this point, like around this cliff. There's no way he could see me. It was like a, a wall between us. And so I kind of exposed myself. I jumped up on the edge of the creek and I kind of showed the other rams where I was. And they, and they by a miracle, they stopped and didn't cross the creek. And, and they kind of climbed back up the other side where they'd come from. And I knew it was a little risky because I wasn't 100% sure if that would have any effect on the big one, but um, it didn't. He just kept on. I got another glimpse of him, and he just just feeding his way back up the way he was going. And so I just spent the rest of the day uh, trying to figure out where he was going to go and either in a stockable spot or bed down. And he bedded down in this place. It was, like, impossible. And it took me forever to figure out a way to get up the mountain without him seeing me. And I finally did that, and I was able to get above him. And uh, it, took, it truly took like three hours to find us just hustling up and down this steep little creek to try to figure out where I could, where I could ascend without being spotted and uh, lots of crawling and like soaking wet. It was, it was fairly miserable. Um, and then, uh, but once I got up high, it was pretty easy traveling. I decided to climb up a couple thousand feet and I got above him and uh, he bet, you know, the, the real lucky part was where he bedded down. He bedded down in this like, series of kind of broken cliffs and uh i was able to climb down from above him and had a fairly steep downhill shot uh less than 20 yards in his bed and uh that was that oh man that's awesome so you were able to bump his buddies a little bit that's cool yeah cool. it was just like one of those spur of the moment should i do you know the day before i think it was because well i guess two days before at that point I had really gotten burned by the the fact that there were, I just couldn't, you know how it is when there's a group of animals and there's, they're all pointing in a different direction while they're feeding and they're all picking up their heads at different times. It's just so hard with the, you know, when your range is 20 yards or so to, yeah. to not get caught when there's, when there's that many eyes and she, yeah. you know, like they have a knack for like, they all bed down facing different directions, you know, <laughs> they all bed down with, different viewpoints so that it's really hard to approach them when they're bedded down in a group. All right. So tell us I, about I this Ram. Uh, how old was he? He was 11. Wow. So just... I don't have a real good perspective, like a mature Ram like that. What, what is the body weight on an animal like that? Oh, you know, I honestly don't know. I couldn't tell you for sure, but my guess is that's probably about a, 200, 180, 200 pound animal somewhere. Maybe a little, maybe less than that. I don't know. Maybe 180. Like, that seems about right. Like a mule, like a mule deer size. Yeah. yeah I, I'd say yeah. it's like a good, maybe it's, maybe they're actually smaller. I shouldn't say that. I think they're, they're not any bigger than like a, than a, than a Kodiak blacktail. They're not any bigger than that. Oh. But maybe 100, 160, 180. That sounds about right. Okay. Incredible. I hear the ribs yeah, are amazing. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Um, I I kept I kept some of the ribs uh, on the bone as many as I, I kept most of the ribs on the bone. Cooked a, cooked a fair bit of meat that night. Once I finally got it all, you know, in game bags, and um, I camped pretty close to where I killed it because by the time I got them all cut up, it was pretty late. It was pretty much dark, um, and it took me a while to get out. But um, when I got back to um, my buddy who'd flown me in, um, when we got back you know, to like semi-civilization, he made a huge fire and he cooked up, um, cooked up all the ribs. And, um, he had, 
he had been able to break free and had gone out hunting for like um, five days in between and he had killed a ram too. So we had meat from two rams and we, we just kind of feasted. <laughs> it was awesome. We, we ate like uh, pretty much a whole sheet's worth of ribs. It was, it was really incredible. Uh, it was a oh, wow. very good oh, memory. Man. What was your uh, bow and arrow setup on that sheet? It was, uh, well, thanks to you guys, I got, after that last conversation we had, I reached out to Dan Tolke, who um, put my fears to rest about the bow bolts being an unreliable two-piece system, which, based on my experience previously, I was like, I'm never touching a bow bolt again. And, uh, you know, he's, as you guys know, he's an awesome guy and super knowledgeable. And he convinced me that I should give another try, and the way he did it was was pretty fail-proof. And so um, he he made me a uh, 58-inch Whistler that is uh, 60 pounds at a little over 30 inches, I think 30 and a half, which is about my draw length. And, uh, and then I was using, um, also from our conversation, I did reach out to, to Sherwood, and I think he'd heard the podcast because he was like... <laughs> I know what you're going to ask, and I don't have an arrow that's going to work for you at your draw length and that weight. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went back to Carbon Arrows, and I was shooting like a, you know, a full length, you know, a 350 spine Carbon Arrow with a, um, uh, with a, a, I had a 250 grain setup on the, on the head with adapter. I was using, I've been using that, that Valkyrie sleeve system. I think it's pretty uh-huh. good. Uh, and I was using, uh, I don't know what I actually killed the sheep with. I had in my quiver a mix of his heads, which I almost never shoot because they're so freaking expensive, and um, but they do shoot well. And then I had some um, some single bevel grizzlies on the adapters. I think that's what I ended up. I think that's just what I ended up pulling out of the quiver was one of those two blade grizzlies single bevels, and uh, you know it zipped right through. I found the arrow just laying in the rocks, which yeah, you know sixty pounds. not a heavy pony. Yeah, it's got some oomph behind it. Like I, um, I shot shot through three blacktails last year, and two of them I I put it right through the pretty heavy part of the shoulder bone, and still got big full pass throughs. That that arrow that setup seems to work pretty well. What are you using for feathers? Uh, four fletch, ninety degree, uh, something like two and a half inch short short little guys. Not very traditional, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I've messed around with those a little bit this year because uh, Andy over at Addictive Archery is always trying to get me to shoot smaller feathers and all that stuff. But I I don't know, I just have, I guess I have a crappy release and I just, <laughs> we tried everything in the world and I just can't do it. I got to shoot a five inch feather. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's the wood arrows, the, but actually, yeah, you know, you Andy need more shoots with arrows and he gets away with it fine. So I don't know. Yeah, I just, that's interesting. Just meat hooks, huh. I guess. Well, huh. if you yeah. ever do want to try wood arrows again, Paul, I know th- a few things have changed. Um, there's a guy uh, that Carson Everett Sherwood has that are footing the shafts now um, mm. down the road from him, and he's got higher spined arrows now, and you can get some footed shafts that are like. 30 whatever as long as you want them and they'll have that mm. hard hardwood footing up there not that there's anything wrong with uh, the setup you're running but yeah there's there's, there's some options oh, out yeah. there 
I love. I mean, as we talked before, I hunted with wood arrows forever, and uh, I, I still like the. I like a lot of things about them, but I'll check it out for sure. I, I honestly think for the for the mountain hunts like this, like this and the good hunts, uh, you know, that my bow takes a beating. You know, like it's covered yeah. in scratches and nicks, and it's almost inevitably there's always at least a few days of heavy rain, and. Uh, you know, like I just have to be a little more careful with what arrows doing that than you do with the carbons. I can how, did your, carbon how, did your, uh, how did the bow bolt? Did that all hold up great? Yeah, so far so good. I used it um, pretty much the whole season last year. I used it um, on sheep hunt, and then I took it. I used it moose hunting and bear hunting. I used it on the um, on the deer hunt, and I've been you know I take it with me. You know, I work up in Cotsview, and I. I take that bow with me every single time I go up there. I shove it in my duffel bag so I can shoot every time whenever I'm up there. Did, did, I've taken it apart dozens of times, hundreds of times probably. Did no, the sure. one the one that failed you was it was it mounted in wood, not in in the micarta? Yeah, it was. Uh, it yeah. was in the, the the treated like the impregnated wood or whatever. The, um, yeah, they call mm-hmm. it di- diamond wood or something. Yeah, the bow yeah. was like, oh, this is fine, but it, it definitely wasn't. Um, I, I, I had to come out from a goat hunt with it uh, in one piece, which was pretty, which was like not ideal for the terrain I was in with the yeah. goat in my backpack because I couldn't yeah. get it apart. Yeah, the Tolkies used the micarta and they build it in there and um, they build the riser first uh, yep. and then build the bow and it's it's bomb proof. Yeah, no, I really like it. I, I have uh, no issues. And the thing that he pointed out that I had not thought of before, you know, I've always thought that the sleeve kind of system, uh, like I've had on Black Widows or Big Jimbos, was was superior. But the thing he pointed out was is that, you know, if you shoot a lot over time, you'll start to lose your tiller uh, if you develop a little bit of play, which I don't know if that's tr- totally true or not, but it kind of made sense to me because I, I can tell you that all the sleeve bows I have that I've shot, for, you know, three, four, five years regularly, they definitely aren't quite as tight as they were when I got them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I've noticed they make noise. Once I've yeah, tried. exactly. Yep. And, and that, yeah, that, like, real tight fit when you get them, like, they definitely develop play over time. And, and whether, you know, that actually makes a difference, shooting with your fingers, uh, or whether you can easily accommodate it by moving your knock point a little bit, that part I don't know. But it, it made sense when 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 uh, Dan told me that. I imagine a a fifty eight inch Whistler, sixty pounds at thirty and a half. That is, that sounds like a real rocket ship. You know, it's not. I, I actually um, had the opportunity to shoot it through a chronograph. I was just curious compared to a couple. I have a few different like kind of fifty eight inch, uh-huh. sixty inch bows. It's not the fastest, but. Um, oh. I definitely shoot it the best. Like I, de- okay. I definitely well, consistently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and whatever. What's this? I don't think five feet per second. No. Makes. So what are you getting? Like one seventy-five. Uh, with the with an arrow, like you know, it's anywhere between like five eighty and six fifty, depending on I'm somewhere in the like yeah one low one sixties to low one seventies, depending on the arrow. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Yeah. That'll do. And I mean, that, you know, who knows? I'd have a crummy release and all kinds of other stuff that's not, not the bow's fault. But uh, have you been shooting the single? Oh, sorry. Have you been shooting the single bow grizzlies for a while? 
uh, yeah, like forever. I mean, I I think the first moose and caribou I killed when I was like 12 or 13 were with uh, grizzlies, or sorry, with with wikis. And then and then uh, and I'm you know, I'm 42 now, and uh, so I was 30 oh, years so ago. Well. And I think the second summer I went hunting, I had read um, one of those like Ashby articles, the traditional bow hunter, and I was this you know nerdy kid that believed everything I read, and I was like, oh, I need to have grizzlies. And I think ever since then, that's pretty much all I've used until I started messing around with those Valkyries a couple of years ago. I love the grizzly head. Uh, they, they've just got a new owner, too. I think it's like their fourth owners. Their new owners, an Amish family. And the Amish yeah. have a pretty good reputation of of quality yeah. work. And I just got a pack, couple packs of them from Andy at Addictive Archery. And I think the quality uh, control has gone up. They are nicer than ever. Oh, nice. Yeah. What do you, that's really good to know. Do you, when you sharpen yours, do you maintain that like Tonto tip? Do you keep, are you able to yeah. like, keep that? Do you get, do you like sharpen that to like a, a raise a shiny razor edge too? Or do you leave it kind of yeah. more? So I, you know, I, I don't mess with that. And if I'm just trying to um, clean them up in the field, but uh, I yeah. cheat and I, I, I have a, a, uh, my buddy has a four inch, um, the broad head, like the soft, the paper wheel and the, and the, mm-hmm. um, hard wheel. And, uh, so yep. yeah, I'll do 90% of the work on the bevel side and then hit the backside, knock the burr off. And then I'll take the auto tips and, and hit, hit them, hit them and just getting them super sharp. Yeah, for sure. Yep. I've tried to that too. I, they often end up getting kind of rounded when I do that, but I've done the same thing. Yeah. I, I'm, they haven't let me down there. They're a good head. I, we were shooting a three D's at a broadhead shoot here last weekend. And, or I guess the weekend before last. And, uh, man, I had some yips and I was missing some targets and I put one in a tree and summoned some rocks and, um, they, 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 they hold up good. I'm, I'm not going to tell you the other brand of broadhead I was shooting, but they were coming apart and falling apart. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to stick with my Grizzlies. That's awesome. Yeah. They're, yeah. No complaints here either. Uh, and that, you know, the heavier you can get away with the thicker, the steel and, um, yeah, that's right. The adapters. Yeah. I'm a you little limited the, there with the, but do you run the 185? Well, I always have. Um, and that's what yeah. I, uh, had used, uh, up until last year when I dropped down from, uh, so those, those doctors, they only come. Well, I guess he has a 75 grain adapter now, but I'd only been able to get the adapters 125 grain, and so I was doing the 185s and shoot, you know, and that shooting the like a little over 300 grain head. But um, I, when I, that Tolkien just it's I, I just got tuned so perfectly with the setup I have with 250 grain heads, and so well, I'm not sure I'd shoot them. I wouldn't love to shoot a moose with the 125. That's what I've got is the 125 grizzly with the 125 mm-hmm. adapter for 250. And yeah. um, I think I think if I was going to moose hunt, I would um, I'd figure out a way to shoot the 185s. Um, right. I run the right middle. Yeah. I yeah. shoot 155s because they tune best to my wood arrows, but I, I do have some of those 185s. Oh, nice. Like you said, they've got a nicer bevel. They're a little thicker, but. The 155s hold up great for me. I've never shot the 125, yeah. but I think Bob Bob has. I I uh, I've only shot one elk with a grizzly, 
and I haven't okay. shot him much really, but I'm gonna give him a go this year. I was ha- I'm having trouble with those, not trouble, but it seems like the Zwickies I've been getting lately. Um, I've just just been a pain. Some of them have been really tough to sharpen, and I'm not the greatest. At yeah. Training, so, um, I've had that experience with those wikis too. Really struggle with them. Yeah. And I I really I like really enjoy sharpening broadheads and, and arrows and, and knives. Honestly, I have a bunch of different toys to do it with, and I've struggled consistently with this, with the new wikis. Yeah. So, so I'm gonna give her a go. Um, the one. What are that What are some good. What are, I, like, I also don't shoot like I don't shoot sixty pounds at thirty inches, so I <laughs> I gotta have a nice broadside <laughs> shot. And if I hit a shoulder, I'm not planning on pounding through it. You know what I mean? I, I gotta be able to break a rib. Yeah. That's my goal. So yep, that's yep. about all I can Perfect. do because yeah. my my shoulders are so weak. I only shoot about fifty pounds. So mm-hmm. so you, you mentioned you had several different toys uh, and you love sharpening. What are your you know two or three go-to uh tactics and methods i think i've come back to full circle to that um that uh kme just the broadhead the one with the little roller on it for the single bevel head okay i have one of those like i think that that thing i used to use their knife sharpener before they made the broadhead sharpener i use that forever okay and um and then i've got one of those um i've got the wheel setup you have like i've got like a a cheap yep. electric grinder wheel with the um yep. uh the like the paper and the and the heavier one um yep. and uh and then I also have one of those um those like kind of nicer like work sharp ones with the with the sandpaper straps uh-huh and, I have one uh, of those too. I, I I like that yeah I mean none of it's like crazy but I like it I like yeah. that one I like that nice convex edge on a on a hunting knife I like that for the hunting knife the uh, work sharp and the wheel is awesome on the th- on the three blade heads, and then great on knives too. And um, before you know, I think maybe I'm like not applying the right amount of pressure or something. But I seem like I get the best, most consistent results with the broadheads on those KMEs. You know, and, and well, dude, I'm going to go back to that because yeah. I bought I bought the KME years ago, and I just didn't put much time with it, and I uh, got lazy and moved away from it. But I see guys running. I just had like a little stone. Are you running like sandpaper setups or how are um, you running that? My, my dad, my dad's all about the sandpaper, but I do. Um, I just bought a series of their, you know, I didn't get the the diamond ones except for just like the real coarse ones to, to put the new bevel uh-huh. on. But so I, I, I rebevel them with that. And, uh, and then I use a series of the Arkansas stones and I finish uh, with the finest Arkansas and then, a bunch of time with either cardboard or leather strop. And what I found is, is that as long as the, the, the thing that seems to work best for me is applying like as light a pressure as I can when I'm finishing, it seems like uh, I never get them as sharp when I, when I'm like putting too much pressure, which I'm always inclined to do. It's taken me a long time to discipline myself, not to push too hard. Oh, uh, that, I think that's where I was going wrong, putting way too much pressure. Um, and are you going like, are you are you are you are you pushing on it like down the stone like sideways or like how, how are you lining it up well, on that little stone? I mean, on the cardboard and leather, you have to pull back, right? Um, or you'll catch them right. tight. Um, yeah. On those ones, I pull back, and on the other ones, yeah, I'll just kind of do um, just either direction, but yeah, just single stroke at a time. Usually going, usually cutting 
like with the blade pushing the blade away from me. Okay. I don't know if that's the right way to do it. I, I, I'm sure those guys um, oh, yeah. could like could, could coach you on if you give them a call. They've helped me before when I've called them. Okay, uh, I need to revisit and, and that because that, that. And I, yeah, I also think that um, Jason at, at Toughhead has like an at one, and I'm not sure. I, I wanted to get my hands on one, but he has one that's tweaked slightly. And I've, I've killed, I killed um, my biggest moose to date with a Toughhead, a 225 grain Toughhead on an adapt, on a 125 grain adapter, and it worked flawlessly. And, you know, same style as the Grizzly. And uh, oh, yeah, I think he, I've I got think a he has it set up. Yeah. Yeah, I got a dozen 190 meat heads, and it, I'm just wishing I could get a 190 head to tune to a Wadero to, yeah. to hunt with those, because that is the coolest, like, that's my favorite looking broadhead ever, for sure. Yeah, they're sweet. They're really sweet. I, I, I um, And I really like the, the stainless steel is really nice. You know, I, I put, I tried a bunch of different stuff to keep them from getting rusted, and I found some heads rust right. more than others, but that... The stainless steel heads, it's so nice to not have to worry about that too much. So what do you do to keep them from, from rusting like your grizzlies? Like, do you, do you coat them with something or spray them with something? Or Yeah, I use, I just use Vaseline forever. And then um, that guy, Brent, at um, Valkyrie has the stuff he calls Jag Jagwax. I'm not sure what yeah. it is, but, man, that stuff is sticky, and it works really well. It, um, it I've just, never... I have, I had no resting issues with that stuff. It's the best, best thing I found. Okay. I just got my hands on it. Yeah. So cool. That's good to hear. What about your feathers? Are you treating your feathers? Nah, I don't bother. I used to, but I think it just, maybe it, maybe it's like, maybe it works, but it seems like to me first couple of days. And then you, after that, they're just same as if you didn't treat them. I feel like after like two or three days, you get some benefit. Um, but then after that, I don't feel like there's much more benefit. Have you tried a spray or you just tried the powder? Just tried the powder. Never tried a spray. Yeah. So if you spray them, like there's a product from Three Rivers um, called No Snow. And I think it's just like a silicone. Mm-hmm. And from hunting blacktails in the rain, it works for sure. You put like three or four coats. But it does make your mm-hmm. feathers kind of like hard. And, and you, you like... It, it, they're not going to break down in a season, but I feel like the next season, your feathers start like mm-hmm. breaking down and, and they're not as mm-hmm. durable, but it definitely keeps them from shrinking. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, I feel pretty confident that, I mean, I, I, I bear shaft tune and I know the broadhead can send them can do weird stuff, yeah. but I've shot, I've shot broadheads quite a bit with even those, you know, big grizzlies with those four fletch in the, when they're, you know, Kodiak wet, you know, matted down and yeah, I feel like they still fly I was going to say, you're, te- well. you're testing it in the harshest environments possible. So I'll go with what you're doing for sure. <laughs> I, feel like, I mean, it's been, I feel like I've been pretty lucky with that, but, but I mean, those arrows are like, you know, they're flying dead straight at 30 yards. They're tuned really well. And I know the, so the only variable is whether they're going to like plane off because of the broadhead. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I might, Cody yeah, who knows? Yeah. What's Kodiak that? wet, you said. I would I I'd love to uh talk a little about Kodiak. Um <laughs> Bob, where do you where do you want to begin? <laughs> I don't know. You you tell me. Uh I, I was well, I was fortunate I, I, enough to go Bob to went, last year, so yep. at least I got to fly over and I 
I called Paul when I got back and I just told him he has ever everybody I think all the guys in Alaska just have huge balls. Like everybody there they're either driving <laughs> ships no across way. like crazy waters, like our boat captains, they tell us all these stories and I mean everything you guys do, <laughs> you're risking your life to like go get the mail. It's it's different. <laughs> so, so I mean being being oh flying God. over there and just seeing seeing it and it was just, it was awesome, man. And it just, I definitely have the most respect for guys like Paul that just go out there solo for weeks and just drop me off over here and, and I'll be good, man. It's incredible. Bob told me some stories that he, that he said we're not allowed to repeat on the podcast because his wife would hear him when she would never let him go back. And then he went on to say, and Paul Ford goes out there by himself. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm glad you had a good experience. It's like you guys had an awesome trip. Oh yeah, it's awesome, and I want to go back. And I and someday I'd love to go to my myself just to, to test myself. You know, it's just something that I feel like it probably just you know is no different than the guy back east coming out here to go elk hunting for the first time and thinking like, wow, this is overwhelming. Yep. You know, um, once you yep. do it a couple times, you're probably like, yeah, well, this is no big deal. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's true. And there is something that you know, not to get all. Um, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, sappy, sentimental, honestly. but don't get sappy. But you like you those solo experiences when you're out there, whether you hike far, a long ways or the plane flies away and leaves you there. There's something about it that is just you just don't get it when you're with other people. In my opinion, yeah. in my experience, it's just really special and cool um, being out there. And, and there's no doubt though that you 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 accept more risk. I mean, that's that's for sure true. So, so I, I think we covered this in the last one, but tell me again about your your uh, camp setup for Kodiak. Because don't you run some kind of special insulated tent? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've done a bunch of different things. Like my setup for for Kodiak, and I you know, I typically go and later in the year, and I. I'm not, it's the only hunt of the year where I'm not carrying my gear anywhere. I'm just, you know, where I land is where I camp. And, uh, so I do, I've got one of those Arctic oven tents and I just bring a little, you know, Walmart, Mr. Heater, portable buddy heater that I, that runs mm-hmm. off propane and, uh, I'll fire it up if my gear gets wet and I need to dry things out or if it's just particularly cold out or like in the morning to get out of bed, it's pretty nice. Are you bringing just the right. little green propane cans, or are you bringing like a one gallon propane bottle in with that? Um, I've done both. My my buddy that um, down there has loaned me his little um, his little you know the gallon type type can before, but other times it's just easy to you know go to the store down there and buy a couple of those green ones, the green Coleman ones. So that's usually what I end yeah. up with. Just um, the other nice thing about those is it's like it's, it's a little easier to gauge your consumption unless you have a gauge, which mm-hmm. is the one I've never had, mm-hmm. I've, never does. So you kind of know how fast you're moving through it. <laughs> yeah, I do. I run a little buddy heater in, in my blacktail um, tent as well to try stuff out. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, before you go to bed or when you wake up for a quick, quick little warm up session for a few minutes, it makes it's nice. Yeah, yeah, especially when you're soaked. You can all the dry your gear. Yeah. It's pretty nice. Yeah, but well, black hunting, it's, it's always soaked, right? 
Yeah, boy, it just seems like it. Um, but when I'm when I'm like mountain hunting, I, my setup's like the opposite of that. You know, I've I've got like sure. a my, my tent probably weighs. I think I weighed my tent the other day because I was curious. Um, my tent's under two pounds, yep. and uh, and that's the tent I'm bringing. And that's like you know a trekking pole type tent, yep. and yep. Uh, everything sure. just so kind similar. of pared down, pared down to nothing. Yeah. So just and uh, and I actually I enjoy if. I enjoy that style of hunting more than the yeah. camp hunting in general. If I can, yeah. get away, I, can yeah. if I can do it, but yeah, for backpack elk, I do the same type of backpacking gear, like trekking pole tent. I love that, but pouring yeah. down rain, November black tails. It's nice yeah. eating steak, steak dinners and having a propane heater in your tent. <laughs> oh man, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Different. To- totally different. So tell us about, uh, sick of blacktails and I know that you lived on Kodiak for a while and you've been hunting there for a long time and Bob went, got to go last year, but you know, I've never been and it's like number one on my bucket list. And just from hearing stories, it sounds like sometimes the population of deer are like amazing and you got deer like just coming out of the cracks and crannies everywhere. And it sounds like it ebb and flows like, what's your experience and where is it at now? And what, and how do you, you know, expect it to change? Uh, well, I'm certainly no, no expert, but just in my experience, uh, last year was definitely the, about the worst I've seen it. It wasn't, it wasn't Mm -hmm. terrible. And it seems like some parts of the Island, you know, I think the Northern part of the Island around town got hit harder than other parts of the Island. But, um, it was, you know, that was a really, I think it's, it's, it's just something that has to do with how much snow falls. And uh, I don't know what last winter was like. You know, we had a fairly like normal, i.e. like cold Alaskan winter last year, which we haven't had in a long time. And I don't know if that yielded a lot of snow down there or not. I really haven't heard what, what happened down there this past year. But um, the winter before last, the, the 1920, 2019, 2020 winter was a really snowy one in parts of Kodiak, and it was a pretty good die-off, and it was it was a little summer pickings for sure. And uh, my experience last year was definitely fewer, fewer older, bigger bucks than I've uh, seen in the past in, in a similar, the same area. But um, but still, you know, a decent number of deer around, but definitely overall overall fewer deer fewer deer so do you think the recovery rate in that's like you know what you maybe two to four years for for things to catch the class back up and i think that's right yeah the first year that i ever did a fly out hunt on kodiak i'd hunted the road system for a few years prior to that but was 2014 i think and that was another year that had i'd been told had previous winters had been kind of harsh and the numbers were kind of recovering and this this felt worse than that and uh and then i think it was 20 fall of 2019 was about as good as i'd ever seen it there's a lot of deer around and uh and yeah in 2020 it was definitely significantly different and i i think yeah. it had been quick quite a few mild winters in like the, the 20 teens prior to that, prior to this last event. 
Yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah, it's kind of what I noticed from watching people's YouTube channels and stuff. It was like, man, and we had Burkhardt on uh, talking about deer, you know, just like everywhere. And it seemed like when Bob went that uh, they got on deer, but it was not some of the stories that you hear uh, from the years past where there were an abundance. Yeah, I um, I need to, you know, I, at this point, I just know I'm going to go. So I just... <laughs> love being down there and i uh, i haven't last year i was like obsessing about it and talking to people a bunch and this year i've just kind of maybe i just had so many other things in my mind i just haven't honestly looked into it to hear how things are going down there but i'm sure i'll start to ask around a little bit you're just going so did you know, you'll figure it out when you get there <laughs> i think i mean ultimately what else can you do right there's going to be deer around and you just do your best and see what happens but so last winter you took your wife and son? No, uh, last winter I was by myself. Last last Where's November that? I was by myself. Yeah, I, we did a uh, so yeah, 2019 when he was just like you know he was like three months old then we did the not like yeah two and a half months old we did that like trip the one I told you guys about where we hiked up in the high country for a couple of nights. Uh, yeah. with him but otherwise we haven't really done much hunting with him besides that the only other, okay. we, you know we did this we did a uh, a traverse last year we flew into the um, the high talkitnas and like did this kind of traverse of the high talkitnas along this ridge system t- between these two two lakes that we could land and uh, and that felt like that was another one where we were like, gosh, are we, are we pushing it too much here? Cause we were pretty, pretty out there and had a little bit of bad weather. Um, but that was a good trip. That was only five days. And, um, and then, uh, and then this year we did the, the big wrap trip, which was our biggest trip to date with the little guy. That's awesome. Well, I'm a sucker for black tail story. So can you, can you, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about last year and maybe give us a, give us some of the highlights. Yeah, uh, it was, it was, let me think when some good ones was last year. It was, well, it was definitely harder before, to come. I, I think we had, we had, must've had you on before, before the fall of 2019. Cause you sent me a picture of the one you killed in oh, yeah. killed Whopper in 2019. Uh, I think that it was. was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, tell us that, that was, uh, yeah. well, that, that was talking about luck. I, I had you get lucky a lot. I, lot. <laughs> I do, I do. I had uh, fortune. I, I was struggling that hunt. I so can I digress? Talk about shooting for a second. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> yep, yeah. I, you know, I've been I've been shooting a longbows and recurve since I was like a really little kid, right? And I shot them almost every like pretty steadily throughout my life. Like never really put it down for any period of time. And I think like a lot of bow hunters recently i've decided that there's all these guys out there like um tom Klum and joel turner that are you know applying some pretty awesome stuff to the to traditional shooting and so i kind of started subscribing to that and i got this idea going into 2019 that i was gonna do some uh, some kind of weird aiming stuff like some some gap shooting, which I'd never done before. And then I was like, Oh, well, somebody talked to me to doing a fixed crawl. And I was like, Oh yeah. And it, you know, I don't know if you guys have played with this stuff, but it's like incredible how accurate you can be 
on your target at home once you get your form dialed on that stuff. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I got this. I, boy, I feel bad for any deer that gets within 30 yards of me. And uh, I missed every single time shooting low. I missed four deer. Oh, you're making me right, feel right really good right now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was it was awful. And um, and I had, I had, uh, I had done the same thing. I had missed – I shot that – a big moose in 2019, the biggest moose I've ever killed. And I missed him at like, I mean, a moose is a big target. I shot under his belly the first shot at 20 yards. And uh, I was, and so, I, and then I went to the, you know, a couple months and a half later, I was like, I'm deer hunting. And I had like, I worked out all the issues. And I think what it is, is, you know, your mind defaults to what you know in moments of stress. And, uh, and what I knew was instinctive aiming. And when that arrow was, you know, a centimeter above my fingers and I was aiming the way I always have, it was going, it was going low. And, and so I, it was driving me nuts. And so I just really struggled on that hunt. I, like I said, I missed four good bucks and, and it wasn't easy hunting. There was a lot of deer around, but everyone was, took took a lot of effort to get, to get to. And I was just, just really kicking myself. I finally got a smaller one. So I was like, I gotta, I gotta bring home some meat. I love that meat. And I was like, well, it's going to be it. I'm going to go home with like one, one, you know, smallish buck and that's fine. And I was getting some pressure from home because we had the little baby at home. Like my wife was like, you need to get out of here. And there was a big storm coming in. It looked like, so I was like, well, I guess this is going to be how it goes this year. And, uh, there was this fog in Kodiak that kept the pilot, kept all the pilots from being able to leave Kodiak for days. And so every morning I'd get up thinking I was going to leave and it's happened, I think, it was the third, it was three days before I finally got picked up. And, uh, and the day that, the second day of that, I, I was all ready to go. And then he said, oh, we're fogged in. It's not going to happen. You should go hunting. And so I went hunting. And um, I saw this, uh, right, right near camp, right where I was camp, I saw this, like, really nice buck cruising the ridge. And, uh, you know, I, I've hunted there before and I'd been there enough that I kind of had a sense of kind of the route they were taking a lot of the time. And so I just, you know, grabbed my bow and a couple of arrows and just literally ran up this ridge and scrambled near the place. And, uh, it all just played out. And, and I, uh, I was just like screaming at myself to not screw up the shot. <laughs> that buck was approaching. <laughs> like, just, I was like trying to be so cognizant of like every moment, every like, phase of my shot I, I knew I'd blown it so many times and I made a good shot and he, he uh he didn't go far and it was it was I think it was might have been my maybe my biggest buck I've ever killed down there it was a nice nice deer but it wasn't like I was like you know any skill like oh I've looked over lots of bucks and pursued this big one it just happened to be that that big deer was the one that <laughs> was the one that was within reach that day <laughs> so what did you did you resort back like, did you pull together and, and shoot a gap or did you just dump all that and go back to what you knew? Or like, what did you do in that I, moment and what are you doing now? I, um, I, I was committed at that point, you know, I was just like, I had the, my, my knock points were all set up where I had this, this stupid gap and a stupid fixed crawl. And so I was just like, I had done a, a practice. I did a ton of shot shooting around camp after I missed a bunch of deer and I was like, you just really, really have to focus on like putting that point there. 
And so I shot him that way. I did. I mean, I was all, I mean, I didn't feel like I could like kind of rebuild the, my shot and like re- right. reset my knock points out there on out there for my tent. And so, um, but sure as heck, first thing I did when I got home was tear that all apart. And, uh, I've gone back to the, I would say the way I describe my aiming process now is anything under 30 yards and I'm just, you know, instinctive, but I bet, I bet you if you turned off the lights, if it was dark, I would have a hard time because I bet you I'm using, I'm using that arrow in my peripheral and, but I'm not thinking about like, Oh, I'm at 25 yards. It should be, it should be 18 inches below or whatever. Yeah. I'm not doing I think like I do that. the same. Yeah. Right. Um, but I know, but, but I know my gaps and, uh, I know my, um, and that's one thing that like working with Tom, you have really refining my, my form, the shooting, the gaps out at longer ranges. Like I can, you know, I'm, I'll put at 40 yards, I'll put every arrow like into the foam of a, of a deer target now. And at 50 yards, you know, five out of six will be, you know, pretty, pretty decent shots using gaps. But, um, but I, I never dream of doing that, you know, as a, as a first shot on a, you know, an uninterviewed right. animal. Um, you also but, said, so, yeah, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, that's it. That's all I got. That's it. Go ahead. Okay. You also said that you grabbed a few arrows and then went after that deer. It made me think that maybe you are not using a bow mounted quiver or are you? No, I am. I just was, t- I, I was in this, like, you know, I was waiting for a pickup, so I had taken stuff apart. Um, oh, and then I okay, gotcha. slapped it. So I just, I had like, start, yeah, okay. no, I used all my quiver. I think. Okay. I've, I've thought about not, but it's the only way that I can do what I do, I think. Yeah. It's, it's the quandrum of, like, I love the way a bow shoots without one, but it's hunting the bush, it's really hard not to. So I was just curious. Yeah. What you're, and like, you know, when I'm, when I'm sheep hunting or goat hunting, uh, I, I'll very often spend a lot of the time, you know, most of the time with the bow strapped to my pack and, uh, I just strap it across the top, you know, pointed out toward with the tips pointed out toward the sides. Mm-hmm. I found that's the safest way to carry my bow in the mountains because if I, if I'm going down a hill and I fall on my butt, the bow right. is not going to hit the ground because it's on my, the back of my pack and not having the bow quivered would make that that much harder yeah for sure 100 percent. do you do you take a tube with you and bring extra like you have like uh five arrows in the quiver or six arrows in the quiver or whatever and like another five or six in the tube when you go on these long distance hunts or do you just I, get by with it i never used to i never i never used to but i i do now um in the path that i use i have um these like long side compartments it's like side pockets and uh-huh. um just by luck they have like these little um it's like each of them is designed to take a water bottle with a hose and instead of doing that i just i just stick the arrows in there and i can uh, i don't i don't want to carry around the weight or bulk of a tube so i just jam them in there and uh and the fletch you know is about the level of the top of the pack so it's pretty well protected and I'll just put, you know, okay. four or five extra arrows in there sometimes like that. Or a lot of times, you know, I'll just, I'll be, until I find a, I guess it's always true. I like to shoot my bow a lot, but sometimes I'll spend a fair bit of time hiking with my bow in my pack too. And they are, all the arrows just jammed in that side pocket. What, uh, what pack do you use? I, uh, 
I've tried a bunch of different stuff. I still haven't found one that's like I think is perfect, but I've been using last year I used a Seek Outside. Um, mm-hmm. the biggest one and I just got like it's like the simplest pack. It's basically just a giant bat like a giant tube uh mm-hmm. of that like waterproof material they make the packs out of and then it's got two big like jumbo size like, you know, like side pocket, like almost like giant spotting scale pockets on either side. And okay. like no zippers, no no pockets besides those two big ones, no compartments. And that is, you know, it's waterproof fabric. I, I seem to seal it really well. And, that's and then just like a roll top with buckles? Just a roll top with buckles. And I um, I have a lid for it, but I've never actually taken the lid hunting with me. I've just never needed it. Copy. Like what is it like yeah. size? Like 6,000 or something? Uh, I think I think that they call it a 7,400. 7,400, okay, yeah. Yeah, every company makes their things differently. It's um, it's basically uh, the it's basically uh, either the Brooks or the Saker. I can't remember which one I have. One of them is a detachable, and one of them is like is um, not detachable. But they're the same bag, the Brooks and the Saker. I I just, I mean, I just like the biggest one possible, and a lot of times I end up just throwing the meat in the pack bag, you know, in a in a compacted bag or something instead of doing the whole like load shelf between the bag and the right yeah totally do you use one of their one of their shelters or i did last year i used the um silex there's one person zipperless oh yeah yeah that has no zipper yeah i thought it was great i i used it on my last kodiak goat hunt too um which was pretty weathery and it, it held up pretty well on some kind of sketchy ridgetop camping. Um, but the, I've played with and even set up once in my yard the, uh, the two-person, the Eolus, and I haven't used it in the wind yet, but it doesn't seem like it's going to, like it'd be quite as bomber. So I think we're going to take like a pyramid-style shelter on this sheep hunt since my wife's coming for the first part. Okay, cool. Yeah, kind of. I just like hearing all the different gear, especially a guy like you that's really putting it to the test. It's cool to hear what you're using and how it's working out. And you, yeah, so the, the goat hunts on Kodiak, you can just buy two ta- is it two tags over the counter every year? Uh, yeah, it depends on uh, where on the island you're going to hunt. The problem with the place that you can get your registration tags for an Alaska resident, you get your two is. Um, those are all places that you can really only get by plane um, or I guess by boat potentially. But um, the places you can get to off the road system are uh, most of the season are draw tags. And then they used to always open up this registration archery only tag that started, I think November 1st. And that's, that's what I hunted pretty extensively when I was kind of figuring this stuff out, kind of cutting my teeth on goat hunting. Um, but that have, they haven't opened that in a few years, I think because the, the, uh, draw tags have had such high success numbers that they, they haven't felt like they could open up remaining tags for the road system hunts. Okay. And, I just and remember see, seeing yeah. those goats up there and just being like, man, I wish I was an Alaska resident. <laughs> it's so awesome to just, Take off and go go. Oh yeah, oh, it's awesome. I mean, it's in a lot of ways it's like easier than, than the deer hunting. 
Yeah, you're, you just hike up to the top where there's no brush. Yeah, it's a little more dangerous, but it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's you know, it gets a little more challenging if you're targeting, like, like a, a more mature billy, but, uh, the, yeah, they're awesome animals to, to hunt with a bow because of the terrain they're in is really conducive to getting very close. <laughs> yeah. Are are there other islands to hunt sick of black tail on that have that open landscape like Kodiak or is Kodiak it as far as wanting that, that type of experience? I think for the open, for, the, for like the, you know, I'm sure there's lots of places down in Southeast where you can get up in the Alpine and have that experience, like hiking through a uh, through tree line. But I think for the, the like low elevation kind of open ground hunting, I think Kodiak's the spot for that. Okay. It's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So back on the goats. And do you do it every year or do you just do it when it doesn't no. fit in with your sheep? So, you know, I, I was you know, going through school and like residency and all that stuff. So there's a bunch of years where I just like didn't have a lot of control over that and I couldn't go on those kind of hunts. I could only do, you know, I could go moose hunting or caribou hunting a little bit when it made sense. Uh, so it wasn't until like early, but it wasn't until like 2012 that I could really start doing those kind of things. And, uh, and that's when I was living on Kodiak a lot of the year. We forget so, your doctors um, have to go to school for a long time. Huh, whatever. Yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> it interferes it, it, it a lot of hunting seasons. Uh, I got I get a fair bit of hunting in there, but it's it's not easy. Uh, so, so um, and, you know, my impression at that point about sheep hunting was uh, a there's a lot of people doing it, and a lot of the rams get killed. There's a lot of pressure. Uh, B, you know, you're you might find one legal animal your whole hunt if you're lucky, and I was just like really hungry to just stalk a bunch of animals and just pursue animals. And, um, you know, I love being in the mountains, but goat hunting was, uh, made more sense to me because, you know, if there's goats around, you know, there's probably, there's probably at least a young billy in a herd of even the nursery herd. And, uh, you know, if there's a, if there's a good billy or a billy at all, it's a legal animal, right? And you can almost always, if you spend, you know, spend a week in goat country, you can almost always find a couple of billies. Where, opposed to sheep hunting, where that's not a given. You spend ten days in sheep country, you might not never, you might never see a legal ram. Like I'm entirely prepared to, on this hunt I'm taking off on for the possibility that I'll walk for fifteen or twenty days and never see a legal ram. It's possible. And so I just really wanted to stock animals and hunt. And so goat hunting was like was really appealing to me. And um, so uh, I started, and, uh, and Kodiak had that. Uh, I was still so close out of the residency. Like I didn't like paying for a flight out was kind of beyond my means at that point. I was just trying to catch up my student debt and deal with all that stuff. So I was just hiking the only, and that, so those registration hunts were like a really great place for me to kind of cut my teeth on mountain hunting for sheep and goats. I put in a ton of time doing it. I was like every free moment I was up there, you know, every three day weekend and I take four days off here, five days off here. I was just up there, constantly trying to learn how to do it and figure it out so i put in a lot of time in those those years um chasing those things including a lot in the snow um never on skis but a lot on crampons and ice axes because kodiak and everything <laughs> faster and nice um Dude, does a does billy eat good yeah i'm not gonna lie they're not as good as sheep um my yeah. that was another thing that pushed me toward i killed that 
the first time I started sheep hunting again uh, was 2017. I killed that ram in the Chugach, and uh, and as a nine-year-old ram, and my my wife was like, "Stop hunting goats! Like this is what we want." <laughs> <laughs> You're like, "Yes, yes, ma'am." Uh, she had she had she had killed a goat at that point, I think, with me, and uh, and I'd shot a handful of them at that point. But uh, she uh, so and then 2018, she had a sheep tag, and I think I I did go goat hunting that year, um, and then 2019 uh, I went goat hunting. I didn't. Like, uh, it's all blur. It's all blur. I can't remember. <laughs> I think 2019, I didn't go. Yeah, 17 and 18, I sheep, I sheep hunted for myself. I sheep hunted with her. I think I snuck in a sheep hunt in 2018 on my own. In 2019, or a goat hunt, I mean, I did a goat hunt. And then 2020, last year, I went sheep hunting. And, have, uh, have you gone after the mountain caribou? Kind of. Uh, just the only place that, as far as I know, or was considered mountain caribou is the herd on the Kenai Peninsula which is, like, really close to where I live. I mean, it's, like, as a co-flag, it's, like, 10 miles away to where they live. But um, uh, getting up in that country can be tricky, and they're just draw tags only unless you have a subsistence, uh, unless you have a subsistence tag, which I don't qualify for. So I've done it. I've, I've drawn that tag once in my life, and uh, to be honest, it was, a, it was during residency. I put a pretty half-hearted effort. I shoved my bill in my pack and just started walking, and, Never saw one. I covered a lot of ground and never saw caribou. A guy like you that, that has all these options being, you know, living in Alaska and do you ever like, does your mind ever wander off to uh, desert mule deer or bugling bull elk in September? Or do you not even, even consider or think about oh, it? Yeah. Just curious. Oh no, I'd love to. It sounds awesome. I just, uh, it just doesn't seem like it's like it's, it's something that's realistic anytime in the near future, but I'd, I'd love to yeah. do it. Um, I think it sounds awesome. And I've also, there's, there's a handful of, of, hunt, of hunts I'd love to do, but uh, I, you know, the meat's really important to me. I, it'd be logistically kind of tough to go shoot an elk and bring it all back home. Uh, I'm right. sure it's doable, but, and, uh, but that like, you know, high elevation mule deer hunting was awesome, but I'm honestly just like, so immersed in trying to figure out the hunting that I'm, that I'm doing. I still feel like, Oh, I don't blame so much I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just trying to figure it out still, you know, it, it's, it's plenty challenging enough and, uh, but it's some, someday I'd like to, it'd be really cool to go check that stuff out. Sure. Well, I, I imagine, uh, chasing dull sheep and you know uh, uh in your your you know in your 40s is is it's gonna be a lot different when you're in your 50s and 60s so you gotta get after it while the game's good you know um i was all i, I really enjoyed that moose hunt a couple of years ago and uh, i was all like oh, i'm gonna do this every year i went to went to a really cool spot and uh and i had a conversation with um don thomas for whom i'm a huge fan i think that guy's just amazing yeah. I talked to him on the phone and uh, he just kind of mentioned offhandedly. He was, he said, boy, I was, we we're talking about sheep and goat hunting. He said, boy, if there's anything I could do over again, I would have spent more time doing that stuff when I, when I could still do it. 
And, uh, and then we started talking about something else, but it really resonated with me. And, you know, with, you know, with some luck, hopefully I can, I can hunt moose and maybe elk and mule deer when I'm, you know, 20 years from now, I, I doubt I'll be right. doing, you know, 15 days solo sheep hunts when I'm 55 or 60, maybe, but I hope yeah, Doug Borland, he's, yeah, Doug Borland, yeah, he's totally <laughs> getting after it. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, hope, but I'm, I feel like I'm always like one, one ski crash away or one like bad, bad roll in the river, like in a big hydraulic away from like losing a hunting season and, putting me down a path of <laughs> recovery. Oh, Bob, uh, Bob, yeah. Bob said just the air, just the airplane rides <laughs> out there. <in> the, uh... <laughs> uh, so, oh, yeah, questionable. Speaking, speaking yeah. of Don Thomas, um, did I hear yeah. you're uh, involved with Alaska bow hunters now? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's been, I think it's the second or third year that I've, um, maybe the second year that I've been on the, uh, one of the directors, uh, oh, the, awesome. at the Alaska Association. So yeah. Yeah. It's a good group. Awesome. You guys, uh, I heard you guys have been working on some proposals here and there about getting some, what were you guys working on? Extended the moose season maybe for archery or something like that. Yeah, you know, I don't know how it works in other states, but in Alaska, different hunting units, game management units come up for proposals every year. Okay. And so, so it's not like you can, you can put in proposals for the whole state every year. It's always specific to a certain region. And for the region uh, that was up for proposals this past year, uh, we submitted um, a bunch of proposals as a, as a group. And then, um, some of us submitted individual proposals as well. And, uh, there was this whole virus thing you guys might've heard about pandemic. I heard about down there too. Um, but, uh, We're not fans. It's, it, yeah, no, neither. No, big, big, not fan. Let me tell you in my, my other line of work, not, not fun, but anyway, um, yeah that pushed everything back a year. So what was going to be, uh, uh, discussed at last year's board of game meeting is all got pushed forward till this year. So, um, they extended the, actually, yeah. So, so well, they, they extended the, the time when you could submit proposals anyway into this past spring. So I think we're going to actually go to the board of game meetings and have all our discussions, um, this fall and, and coming winter. And, uh, yeah, there's some, um, there's some proposals about extending some moose seasons for our tree. Uh, I, I know that there's been people trying to get archery sheep seasons for at least a decade, probably more that have way more knowledge and experience about the way that stuff works than I do. Um, but, um, I, and, uh, I'm really committed to like continuing to try to beat that drum because I think it's, appropriate and would be a win-win for everybody and uh i i think we should have i think we should have a sheep season an archery sheep season and so i've put in a bunch of proposals for that um in different ways and different wordings including one that um you guys inspired that we you know we talked about it one of the kind of choose your weapon style hunts which i know that's brought with with problems and a lot of people have a lot of reservations about it but it makes a lot of sense to me do it that way yeah 
So we'll see what happens. So yeah, and when, I think that that's guys, how uh, all these. When you guys submit these proposals, do you guys have a, a game commission that decides on it, or do then the biologists go through the posal, or pr- proposals and then submit them to the commission, or how does it work up there? So my understanding of the process, having having only been through this kind of once, Mm-hmm. is that the proposals are, you know, open. Anybody can th- can put a proposal in there. And then um, they get put into this, like, proposal book that's available to the public that lists all the proposals that have been made for that year and those units. And then there's a public comment period that um, is, can be both um, written phone and then they have um, regional board of game meetings. So, like, each of the major kind of, like, uh, populated areas in the state have have their own like kind of regional group, and uh, there's regional meetings, and then there's the state board of game meeting, which I think is I don't know if it's always in Fairbanks, but the last one was in Fairbanks, and uh, and then that is where the the board of game, which is um, made up of of people with different kind of hunting interests, uh, including you know just regular old guys who like to hunt, um, but is pretty heavily, honestly, tilted toward outfitters and guides. In uh, in my opinion, uh, my personal opinion. That that's mm-hmm. that's me speaking for me, not for Alaska bow hunters. <laughs> um, but uh, there's a, there's a big outfitter guide interest uh, that is very well represented in state in the board of game, and um, and then ultimately they'll they'll decide. I don't know if the if for those kinds of things, there's a, there's like a biologist group that weighs in directly. I think that you know people cite biologists' work, and they may they they may collaborate with biologists if there's like a proposal that is you know is, is interesting or has some concern there. But I don't know. I honestly don't know how those guys um, interface with them. Interesting. Yeah, I know it's kind of different. You know, I talk to people in a lot of different states and. And, uh, it's, it's different how each one operates and thank you for getting involved and, and yeah, uh, looking out for, for bow hunters, man. That's awesome. I, I just there's a, I know how like these states work and once they, once they have things set, man, it's hard to get them to change it. And the fact that I get why Alaska doesn't have archery seasons because it's such a remote place and, and it's, you know, it's never really been needed before per se, but man, I think. You know, with with the pressure that you guys are seeing up there, and the the advances and you know technology and everything, it, I think I think it'd be awesome to get some archery seasons up there in Alaska. You know, yeah, I well, think there's I, a yeah, point you, that that go ahead. that you made, Paul, that I'd like to highlight. That you had said that you know going after those archery seasons, and that you um, you know may or may not know the most about it, and you weren't the first one to do it. And there's guys that would that started beating that drum 20 years ago. And I, I'd like to point out that it's so important for the next generation like yourself, like what, what Bob has been doing as our field governor with Turgis Archers of Oregon, um, where guys like Rich Thompson and the ones before him, you know, because the guys, they, they start pounding that drum, but they get tired. And if someone doesn't jump, the next generation doesn't jump in and help start beating the drum, it, it, it can, we've seen it in other states where they've made good progress to the point where they were going to, you know, have some success or, or, or meet some of their goals. And then 
it fades off into the in, into the sunset. And so I think that it's just really important, you know, if guys are listening, that that um, to get involved and and help these guys that have already started. You may not you know know the most or whatever, but you know you gotta kind of help the next guy, the next generation, um, help move these things forward. Cause I, we're seeing that is where our success has come from here in Oregon. I know Bob yep. will probably have something to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not doing anything new. We're just continuing on what, what, uh, those guys before us did. And thankfully traditional archers of Oregon, they never quit beating the drum, you know? So I'm able, it's easy hey. for me. I can go to these meetings and say, well, we've actually been, coming to these meetings since 1984 you know trying to stop this from yeah. happening and now it's happening and here we are like you know it's it's yeah it's all laid out there so yeah yeah i know i think that's awesome you guys are doing that and i've i've tried to pay attention to what you guys are doing there and what's going on in arizona um with the, some of those proposals and, and i mean i know i'm preaching to the choir but obviously archery and traditional archery in particular are could be really awesome management tools in my opinion. And, uh, in my, again, again, this is just my opinion, but a lot, everybody has this perspective of Alaska. It's just like vast, huge landscape that is just so big that you can never, can never touch it all, never impact it all. But I'll tell you what, like if you, if you got in a bush plane or whatever, and you fly around Alaska you know, after August 10th until like the end of September, it doesn't feel that big. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, it's yeah. big. You're not, you know, like there's not that, I mean, I'm sure there's pockets and places and secret little, little zones, but there's not that many places that you're going to go hunting where you're going to be, where you're probably realistically going to be more than 10 or 20 miles from the next guy, which I know that seems like that's huge and it's so big. And I know that, I know that we're so lucky to have so much land up here, but the reality is, is that, it's not that big and technology and airplanes make it feel pretty small. And, you know, when I was a kid, there were still places, um, in the Chugach where if they weren't, if they weren't, uh, even had like some open season tags, like for sheep, for example, there were at least like the drawing tags, there was a lot of tags available. Like I remember like my dad got a U tag for near our house and that's like unheard of now. Um, because there was, you know, so many sheep around and, you know, there's lots of factors as to why there's fewer sheep and fewer caribou and other animals. Um, some of which are, you know, climate related or other things. Um, but some of it's, you know, human pressure. And I would be so sad if, if there's a, a stepwise progress toward more lottery draw hunts instead of just, you know, just plain and simple, making it harder. Yeah. make it harder. Like whether that means less motorized access, whether that means, uh, weapons limitations, uh, moving toward more primitive weapons like bows or even, you know, my dream would be it's all, it's all traditional archery, but yeah. <laughs> right. Or even just taking the scopes off of rifles, right? I mean, yeah. taking the scopes off rifles. Totally. And yeah. I think yeah. that, you know, we're, we're like, we're, we're being as, as a group, we're, we've become so such efficient killers and such yeah. effective backcountry travelers. Yeah, that, I can sit um, here. I think, yeah, I can sit here right now and look on on X and drop you a pin of exactly where I was last year, and I can download exactly. that and I can go up to Kodiak. It's not a foreign place to me. I have a map that's got no. everything right where I'm walking. It's 
Yeah, so, I mean, Kodiak's not doesn't feel like wilderness. I mean, you're never far away from from people on uh, on Kodiak. I mean, you. <laughs> it is, it's not but, that but like even in the most wild place, like he says, you can drop a pen and be like, camp here, hunt here, yep. drop your food here, take this line that I'm going to send you that goes here. If that doesn't work out, there's too much snow. I'm going to send you a line here. Like you, you people can can purchase uh, or get information given to them on a GPS yep. now that transferred across the world. It's uh, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, and, and I think I think it just comes down to with all the resources that we have. I mean, we we easily have it within our capabilities. I think as human beings up here, you know, to to just eliminate the wild game populations. If we, you know, and obviously there's good regulations, and we have good biologists, and we have you know our state, state fishing game is I think overall doing a good job. But as there's more pressure and the animal populations decline for one reason or another, my opinion is is that you just make it harder. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I, I'm very, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, or very empathetic to like people needing to freezer, fill their freezers. And there's moose and caribou hunts that are well managed. And it makes a lot of sense to me that you should be able to go, you know, access moose and caribou hunting, um, however you need to, to feed your family. And I think that there's mo- most parts of the state that's still okay. But I don't think most people are like feeding their feeding their kids reliably every year on sheep meat. Maybe some people are, some of those guys with, with airplanes, but you don't need a sheep or a goat um, to feed your family. And I think that you, most people go sheep and goat hunting, or maybe the better way to put it, most people don't go sheep or goat hunting just to fill the freezer. It's an awesome, it's an awesome bonus that you get this awesome, this really high quality meat, but we mostly go out there for the adventure and the challenge doing it. And I think that when it comes down to it, making it hard, make it, make it a challenge, make it an adventure. I mean, I've been on a lot of sheep and goat hunts and I got to say, I mean, this is probably a controversial statement, but sheep and goat hunting with a rifle is not challenging. (laughs) It's not hard. The hard part is getting to where they are. But once you know, you have a, a, an animal in your area, I would give, you know, if, if I put any hunter in a valley and I thought there was a legal ram there, um, I would give that guy a pretty damn good chance, or girl, a pretty damn good chance of killing that ram. I mean, they're they're white, they're on the mountain, and if you can shoot 300 yards, pretty good chance you're going to be able to get it. I mean, I'd give yeah. them better odds than if I put them in a river valley and said there's a legal moose in that river valley, go shoot it. I'd give that person pretty low odds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard, I've heard, uh, I've heard bow hunters even say, oh, they're not obtainable with a bow. You know, that's a rifle. That's a, that's an animal you hunt with a rifle, and that seems uh, like well, we know that's not true because you look at guys like Yote Robertson uh, and yourself, and 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 Doug Borland, and and the others that have come before you guys that have proved that wrong. Yeah, I mean, sheep are sheep are smart, and they have really good eyesight. Go, goats, I'd say, is like is is, is definitely a, a, a little easier thing to do in most places, but 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 it's definitely doable. And uh, and you know, I don't know about those guys, but there's there's nothing special about me. I mean, it's just mostly determination and just luck, and, right? It's just all luck. Yeah, well, a lot, yeah, of luck. All luck. luck helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but yeah. but well, I mean, like I just think the point is like we just I think there's there's not a lot of downsides to making it more challenging, whether that's limiting where you can go with your airplane or putting a little bit of weapons restriction on it. 
um, very, especially if the other alternative is to have a draw hunt where you might only get to hunt that mountain range, you know, a few times in your life. <laughs> well, it, it would yeah, make it like a thousand times more sustainable. That's for sure. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's up to us, the next generation here, like James was saying, to, these are, these are newer problems and we, we need to be vocal at the game departments and let them know there's some, some alternative, alternative solutions to just controlling everything. What they do out west here yep. is they control it and they raise, the first thing they do is they control non-residents, they raise fees, and then they control the units completely. And all three of those are a loss for bow hunters, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the, the choice between draw hunts and, and like making it harder just seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, it does. It, you know, and Paul, I mean, and I know we've been ranting on here and this is what we always end up ranting about, but, <laughs> but I thought, I mean, I honestly thought the same exact thing. And I have been in these meetings for the last, you know, well, four years, but the, the last year and a half where they're talking about controlling and, and I'm like, well, it's a simple solution. Why don't we just take these, these three or five units you're having management objective issues in and we'll just make them traditional. And they, yeah. it, it, I just thought that's what every bow hunter would want no matter what. Like you just, okay, we still get a yeah. general season and, and man, it's, we're in our own yeah, world people would, pre- people would prefer to have a, have a lottery. They prefer yeah. to only get the tag every once in a while. Well, and I, I don't think it's, I, I think it's a misunderstanding of what we're trying to do. I don't think that's truly how they feel. I think they still somehow see us as just these elitist a-holes that are just trying to get something and not seeing it as like, look, you can, now you don't have to burn your points. You can still save up your points for this special hunt. You know, one of our draw hunts, but you got to take your family. You still go hunt every year where you've always hunted. Now you just got to get an old school bow and go like it's, they, I just yeah. still just don't, I think they're just starting to see it now that it's all getting controlled. But man, they weren't having it in these years of meetings, I can tell you that. So, uh, it's, it's a battle, but I think just finding the right way to explain it is the hard part, I guess. But, well, Paul, like I said, we don't want to beat a dead horse. We appreciate your time, buddy. And, uh. Oh yeah. And we, yeah, we got to get you on here more. It's, it's always good here. Yeah, for yeah, sure. adventures. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I want you to keep that luck rolling because uh, I, I, li- I like hearing about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think I can get lucky on a sheep two years in a row. I'm fully prepared to have a nice long hike in the wilderness and come home with a light pack. So. Well, hopefully your wife can well, get lucky because that would be super awesome for her to her to get one. That would be sweet. Yeah, those ribs yeah. sound pretty good. Yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty cool. The little our little guy, uh, he, he's pretty fond of. Uh, I, I like rode my bike over to pick him up from daycare today, and as I was putting him in his trailer, the little bike trailer, um, I said, "We're gonna home make dinner," and he said, "I want meat." And uh, <laughs> yeah, we had doll we had doll sheep tonight. We had deer last night. We had doll sheep tonight. So he's he's into it. <laughs> oh yeah, life is good. Awesome man. Well, well, let's get back together and do this again after after season, man. Sounds good, guys. Well, good luck to you, too, and keep up the good work down there. It uh, sounds like you guys are setting a good example for all of us. You too, buddy. Thanks, uh, man. Once again, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for supporting the podcast. Don't forget to check us out 
on our website, tradquest.com. You can send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. We'd also like to thank our good buddy, Andy Ponce at Addictive Archery, Carson Brown at Sherwood Shafts for supporting the show. We do appreciate those guys. And always keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight. Get outside so I 